And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. First, let me say a very happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I hope you're enjoying the incomparable blessings of family and friends. Most Americans uh, remember Kathleen Sebelius as the HHS secretary who helped uh, shepherd the uh, Affordable Care Act debate and then administered the law. Uh, But she also was a two-term governor of Kansas, uh, the uh, daughter of a of Jack Gilligan, the late governor of Ohio, remains the only father and daughter governors uh, in the history of the republic. Uh, she was a fellow at the Institute of Politics this fall, and we sat down the other day to talk about her life and career, the health care law she helped inaugurate, and the evolving rash of revelations about sexual harassment. Kathleen Sebelius, it's Great to see you, and great to have you at the Institute of Politics. You've been a wonderful presence around here. Well, it's been an amazing experience. I didn't know what to expect, and it has exceeded I all tried my to expectations. Tell you. I told you that I it was know, going to be that I know, I know, but it's been a lot of fun. So no one uh, probably around here has as, as deep a relationship with politics as you did. You, you grew up with it all around you. I did. Tell me about your folks. Well, it actually starts with my grandfather, who would have been probably the most successful politician in the family. Not my father's father, but my mother's father, who was beloved and was an elected judge. Uh, in he, Cincinnati, you're in from Cincinnati, Cincinnati from Ohio. From Cincinnati, Ohio. Both my parents born in Cincinnati. Three of my grandparents were born in Cincinnati. I saw somewhere that your great-grandmother worked as a maid for... Uh, for William Howard Taft before he became president. She did. She and her sister, Bridget and Mary Hannigan, came from Ireland, were put on a boat uh, at 15 and 17 by their parents, and uh, ended up in Cincinnati. We're not quite sure yeah, how, how they got that, there. how that happened? Well, not quite sure, but the census in those days recorded the family members who lived in the house, and then they recorded the servants who uh. Uh, also lived in the house. And there were my grandmother and her sister in the home of William Howard Taft before he became um, president. And 100 years later, my father ran against uh, the grandson of the president. Right, and lost. And lost. But it was kind of a great tale of America that um, the grandson of the maid and the grandson of the president were actually contesting each other in a race for the United States Congress. And they both were incumbent congressmen at the time. So your, your mom's father... My mom's father was just a very popular... Politician looked out for folks, but my grandmother hated politics, so he he stayed as a judge and beloved judge and lawyer. My father, which is a tradition. I mean, Taft uh, was a was a judge, and he was that was his sort of springboard. To we politics. don't follow the Taft family. No, I understand. I'm not. We I'm not Gilligan trying to family. impugn the Gilligans, but or the Dixons, right? The Dixons, Dixons. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But my dad um, was the son of uh, a successful businessman. My grandfather and and his father before him ran Catholic funeral homes. Very. Um, Popular, they were um, doing very well. My grandfather was on the board of Procter and Gamble. He was on the board of Kroger's, which is a Cincinnati company. He, um, his oldest son, he hoped would follow in his footsteps as a businessman and a city leader. And my dad um, surprised his father by saying. First, he didn't want to be in business at all. He wanted to be a teacher. And secondly, he thought he would run for elected office, uh, much to the shock of my grandfather. Like a lot of uh, political figures from that era, he also served in the war. And He did. He, as he used to say, he went from, you know, his uh, nice perch in the University of Notre Dame when the campus recruiters came across campuses in those days and said to the senior class, if you agree to go to officer's training school, you can excel accelerate your graduation to January rather than May. 
which he did, and he, he was on that the. He'd end up in Okinawa. No, huh? he was on the deck of a destroyer about six weeks later, and I said to him later, "Why did you choose the Navy?" He said, "Well, we had a sailboat in Michigan, and I thought I'd be <laughs> on the water." <laughs> Um, but yes, he served. He served in the Navy, and then came home and had married my mother, and um, they began to. And they met children. as kids, or well, they went to the same school. They kind of knew the families um, of each other. They didn't really date though, as kids, and somewhere in the college years, they got to know each other again, and um, ended up married to one another, and. Um, the rest is history. And, and t- tell me about uh, your dad's political. I mean, I was aware of him when he was governor of Ohio, and as we've right. spoken before, as uh, in the early seventies, was touted as a potential future presidential candidate. But there were several steps along the way before he got to that point. There were. He ran for city council when I was five, and at that point, the, there wasn't even a Democratic Party in the city of Cincinnati, so he had to run as what was called the charter right, which was sort of the breakaway from the, there were the Republicans and everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, and he ended up, much to everyone's surprise, including his, being successful, the only um, newcomer elected. And uh, I think that began his career as an outsider and a rebel. Um, I'm curious, do you remember that? I mean, do you, uh, you must, I'm sure you remember some of his later campaigns. I'm, I'm wondering how far back your memory of politics goes. Well, I remember, um, I'm not sure I remember the first city council campaign. I remember shortly after that, he was very involved in trying to put together a Democratic Party. So there were people who would come to the House and talk about party building, which was kind of laughable because there wasn't a party at all. He had been inspired by Adlai Stevenson. Mm -hmm. He'd heard Adlai Stevenson speak and said, I'm a Democrat. I want to go volunteer for the Democratic Party only to find out that there was was no Democratic Party. Um, So he put together a Democratic Party, first in Cincinnati and then um, began to grow the party, always involved in social justice issues. He'd been educated by Jesuits. He felt very strongly that Cincinnati was still tied too much to the slavery days of the South and uh, he was involved with a lot of ministers and a lot of people in the community around breaking apart the the racial barriers in Cincinnati, which made him pretty much of an outsider in in the town where he had grown up. Um, I remember my mother talking about attending a wedding at one point. At this point, he'd probably been on city council for a couple of terms, and he was always the voice that was saying, we shouldn't be doing this, we should be doing that. Um, And she talked about going to this wedding with people they had all grown up with at the Hyde Park Country Club, which my grandfather had helped to found. And um, people were so angry at my father that no one would sit with her at the table. My dad had gone to the bar with some friends and came back to find her all by herself. And it was... um, and it just made her mad. I mean, she just said, these people are wrong, you know. And, and But it was kind of shocking to them that it was that deep and that personal. Um, but he believed very much in social justice. He was an early anti-war believer. Um, he got elected to con- – he served several terms on city council and got elected to Congress in 1964. And then got redistricted. And that Correct. was the race against uh, That was the race against Taft. Taft. Um, Bob Taft had a seat that was an at-large seat. My father had the seat in Cincinnati that hadn't been Democratic since, I think, the Civil War. And in the Johnson landslide, he won, and Bob Taft won, and then Ohio in the redistricting lost the at-large seat. So they both ended up in the same congressional district in 1966. And then he ran in 68 for the Senate. He did. Uh, And was that an anti-war candidacy because he challenged an incumbent Democrat? Well, there was a so-called Democrat um, named Frank Lauschy, (laughs) who who was a very popular Ohio. Lighten up. It's like 45 (laughs) years ago. I'm just telling you, Frank Lauschy had – and he had served twice as governor. Two terms as governor, and I think he was in his second or third term in the United States Senate. Um, he was anti-union. He was, um, I mean, he was, he he basically um, was the polar opposite of my father in terms of beliefs on social issues. And that's why he was very, very popular as a Democrat. He held a seat. And my father 
felt very strongly that um, he should be challenged uh, in a primary. Everybody thought he was totally crazy, but people had told him that for years and years and years. And as he said, I think they did an early poll and the polling showed that he had 8% of um, the vote and Laoshi had 92%. He said, we're in. We're, you know, it's a go. <laughs> That's all I need to see. Huh? <laughs> That's absolutely true. But he won the primary. He won. He won. And it was, um, it, it, I think, shook the political did establishment. Did you work in the campaign? I, mean, I did. Were you, you, I you remember were a that campaign yeah. um, very well. Um, I'm... Uh, and he very much was involved with the anti-war group. When mm-hmm. he had been in Congress in 64, um, I gather it was in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson decided that one of the ways to gather support for the war effort was to ask all the Democrats who had won who were veterans to go to Vietnam. And there was a large contingent of people, including my dad, who went, spent 10 days in Vietnam. And I remember that trip very well, and I remember him coming back. My brother is 15 months older than I am, and I have a brother 360 days younger than me. They both were – one was a senior in high school and one was a sophomore in high school. I was a junior, and he came home and said, you absolutely cannot go to Vietnam. I will do anything I can to make sure that this never happens. Uh, there is something very wrong here. We're being lied to. This war is wrong. And he, about half of the contingent who went to Vietnam became the initial signers of the bombing halt in Vietnam. So it, it had a negative effect. Yeah, it wasn't what, what President Johnson, Johnson intended, for, yeah. but my father very much uh, was a... A significant war opponent from that moment on, and part of it was inspired by his two sons, who he just felt would be cannon fodder, and it would be a terrible mistake. So he won the primary, but he didn't Correct. win the general election. He narrowly lost, and this was a very bizarre race. Uh, I mean, it's a thousand years ago, but um, a guy named Bill Saxby, who actually yeah. wanted to be governor, was the sacrificial lamb in the race because nobody was going to beat Frank Lauschi. So they teed up a guy and basically said, if you run in the, the Republicans had said to him, if you run in this race, then we will all support you in, in the governor's race down the road two years later. But we need somebody to run against Laoshi and it's you. My dad, who actually wanted to be governor, ended up, uh, to the surprise of everyone, winning the Senate race. So You know, it's funny, you, you this, I, didn't, I, I want to get back to you, but uh, you just jogged my memory. You know, in 1948, uh, Adlai Stevenson really wanted to run for governor, uh, for senator, for senator, and Paul Douglas, who was <laughs> a reform city council member in Chicago, wanted to run for governor. And the Democratic organization feared Douglas as governor because he knew where all the bodies were buried. Right. And Stevenson was a foreign policy guy, so they ran Stevenson for governor, <laughs> Douglas for the Senate, and each went off and served with distinction in those jobs. I don't think Saxby uh, served with distinction. Well, he ended up being the Attorney General of the United States, yes. if you remember. He yes. was a brief senator, but um, but he won that race. And um, you talk about 48. One of the things, I remember going to the convention of 68 with my father, who was at that point the... Here in Chicago. Here in Chicago. Um, we got into Chicago, and it was clear that there was going to be real trouble. And my dad called my brothers, who were coming to join us, and said, you you may not come to Chicago. You have to stay out of the city. Um, but the peace fight was underway and they a number of them including my father had drafted the peace plank to try and put in the um democratic platform and went to see hubert humphrey and had a conversation with hubert humphrey about the need to have a distinction between the democrats and the republicans and the distinction should be that the democrats needed to stand up against the war in vietnam and humphrey said I don't think this is a good idea. And Lyndon Johnson, the ghost of Lyndon Johnson was hovering, and he, I think, was afraid. So my dad reminded him that in 1948, Hubert Humphrey, as the mayor of Minneapolis, had led the delegation to go visit Harry Truman and say, you need a a civil civil rights rights plank. 
Truman said, it's a bad idea. We will lose the Southern Democrats. And Humphrey said, you don't, ha- you don't have to do anything. The votes are here to do it. You get out of the way, but you need to distinguish yourself from Dewey, and the Democrats have to stand for civil rights. And my father reminded him of that conversation 20 years later and said, this was you. You, the, you know what this looks like. We have the votes on the floor of the House. We have the votes to put the peace plank in. This will elect you president of the United States. This is the right thing to do. And Humphrey could never do it. Yeah. But I can see those qualities in your father that would cause him to be shunned by— Oh, uh, yeah. It's tough to be the conscience. Um, It is. And he had a a great Irish wit, and he couldn't quite filter— what he said on a regular basis. So yeah. It was good lessons for me. I learned uh, I, I'm some things about winning and losing, yeah. and um, I decided I never wanted to lose. Yeah, it's painful. Yes, winning is better than losing. It is. It is. And Although losing, don't with, compromise. I mean, I learned about a moral compass and yeah, losing without principle. Yeah. Uh, winning no. without principle That's is, a horrible. Is, is worse. That's than worse. Losing. That's is much worse, worse than losing. Well. He lost with principle he did. in uh, 1968. Uh, what happened I- <laughs> in that general election? I mean, what? What? Why did he lose? Oh well, um, he. Well, she never endorsed him. Oh right? no, God no. Um, I think it was just a uh, an election where I mean, it was a narrow loss. Ohio still wasn't quite there. There were people who were angry at him for taking out Laoshi. It was a tumultuous time, and I mean, it wasn't a landslide of any kind, and Humphrey was losing. So when you have the presidential ticket going down, it's very hard if you're running as a Democrat in Ohio to pull it out. Humphrey was mad at him also the whole Mm -hmm. time. So uh, he didn't have a lot of national support, and the the national ticket was going to lose to Nixon. And and then he came back two years later. (laughs) He ran a lot of races, David. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently could not take no for an answer. That's right. And um, ran for governor two years later. Ran for governor, and as my brother famously said, which was the quote in the Cincinnati Enquirer when somebody said to John, well, why is your dad running for governor? He said, because he's run for everything else, and <laughs> you know he needs an office. But he was successful. Yeah, I'm sure your dad loved to read that quote yeah, in the newspaper. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was, uh, <laughs> so, um, and, and he, as governor, he was a historic figure in that he uh, implemented the first income tax in Ohio. He did, which again made him wildly popular. Um, (laughs) But Ohio was one of the richest states in the country and about 47th to 50th in every service. Uh, Schools were crumbling. They had no mental health services at all. They had uh, no environmental protection. In fact, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland famously caught on fire a couple yes. of times and was no, declared. No, Randy Newman wrote a song yeah, about that. Declared a fire hazard. Yeah. I mean, that was real. There was so much oil and gas on the top of it. You could not, it was against the law to light a cigarette anywhere near the banks of the Cuyahoga because it would burn. Um, and he just, he felt that an income tax was uh, a missing piece of the Ohio economy. And not only did they pass it in the legislature? He, first of all, campaigned on it. I mean, imagine in this day and age, someone campaigning for office saying, I'm going to install an income tax. He had it passed through the legislature, which was a battle, but they did it. But then the legislature, in their infinite courage, decided they would give themselves an out and put it on the ballot. Um, so he had to run another statewide campaign a year after he'd been elected governor. And Ohioans voted 60-40 for an income tax. Yeah, that's amazing. It was pretty amazing. You know, uh, in Illinois at that very same time, there was a Republican governor, uh, Dick Ogilvie, who implemented an income tax and met the same fate that your your dad did when he ran for re-election, lost to an anti tax uh, Democrat, Dan Walker. Right. But um, so so your dad, I recall, because I, I started as a young, very, very young political writer still in college in 1973, but I was watching the national scene, yep. among other things. And your dad was highly, highly touted. In fact, Peter Hart was his pollster. Now, well, and Mark Shields was his campaign manager. Yeah. That was when Mark was doing, and that's how Peter and Mark 
met. They met in 68 when Bobby Kennedy was killed. They both showed up in Ohio about a week apart when my dad was running for the Senate and said, we both need a candidate and it's you. And they worked on that that campaign together, and then Mark came back to run the gubernatorial campaign. Peter still rhapsodizes about your dad. I mean, he talks about him in such glowing terms, and said he was like, he was the for me the model of what a politician should be. Well, he was um, a man who was, I think, driven by all the right reasons. Uh, He wanted to get things done. He was very impatient, clearly running all these races. It wasn't to be an off. It was to do some good. And important distinction. He he never lost sight, though, of social justice issues and racial equality and, and income inequality. He felt that being in government was a great way to try and balance the economy. But um, And he took some very unpopular positions, but then felt, as, as his educator background taught him to do, that you went out and educated people about why you were doing what you were doing. And if you explained it well enough, if people understood why we needed a tax, what a difference it would make in their lives, then they would respond. And He didn't educate quite enough of them in 1974, though. It was, a, it was a, actually a Democratic year. It's a huge Democratic year. Uh, and, and he lost by 11,000 votes. He lost by a tenth of a percentage point. They didn't call the election for three days. Um, and in fact, at midnight on election night, the former governor, Jim Rhodes, who ran against him... Um, came back for a second two-year, two-term stint, Uh, Jim Rhodes conceded uh, at midnight. And at that point, we knew, because we were looking at the numbers coming in, that he had the percentage he needed out of northeastern Ohio, which was the Democratic stronghold, but he didn't have the turnout. Mm-hmm. So that while he was getting, you know, 65% of the vote, the vote numbers were down enough that it was going to be very close. So let me ask you about you in all of this. <laughs> uh, you, uh, I know you were, were you, were you through college at that point? I graduated from college in 71. He got elected the first time. Let's just take a, a short break and we'll be right back with Kathleen Sebelius. So in Irish political families uh, of that era, there was a tradition, and that tradition was that the oldest son would be become the politician. That was the Kennedy tradition here, uh, Rich right. Daly, and uh, it was that's just the way it was. There weren't a whole lot of stories about the daughters going into politics. What what did you did did you know as a as a a child that, you know, someday I'd kind of like to do this. And did your parents encourage you to think about that? Well, I never really saw myself as a candidate, but I knew politics was something that I loved. Um, I actually got to be the girl in the room. So I, I adored my dad and I would sit in on meetings and I would hang out at these gatherings, which mostly were men. Um, And um, I learned a lot. I heard a lot. I saw a lot of activity along the way. Um, And at some point along the way, I did actually figure out that my mother, who was amazing, wonderful, strong, tenacious, supportive, she really had the lousy side of the bargain. I mean, she had four kids and uh, this household and this often absent husband, and he got to stand up in front of big crowds and they would clap their hands and write checks and he got to go to dinners. And I thought, okay, if I if I have to be one of them, I want to be him. Um, you know, that looks pretty fun. But I really didn't ever think I'd be the candidate. I just thought I would be involved in politics. When I married my husband, who I met, and I went to college in Washington. Who's also from a political family. He is. He is. His father was in the state Senate and then in Congress. In um, Kansas. In Kansas as a Republican. So we have a mixed marriage. But Gary was always far more liberal than his dad. Did you? Did you – were there things about which you commiserated – you and Gary, about being in political families? 
Well, actually, we we had some very funny early conversations because I knew his father was in Congress. He had no idea who my father was. <laughs> and so I tried to commiserate with we him only to my, find out our, later. Our, my engineer, uh, uh, Zane, uh, points out that we didn't expressly say your dad was Jack Gilligan. Jack Gilligan from Ohio. Yes. yes. So Gary um, thought initially that I was just making these very strange comments and why would I talk about his father being in Congress because he had no idea we had that in common. Um, What we later learned, which became very important to both of us, was that the family approach to politics was wildly different, um, partially through the mothers. Gary's mother hated politics, and she... um, talked about Keith being gone and leaving and being absent. And that became a very difficult part of her life. My mother was the ultimate cheerleader and supporter, how important the work he's doing, how we can get involved. My dad wanted us all to know what he was doing. And, um, you know, politics is really tangible as a kid. I kind of knew where he went to work. I could watch it in the newspaper. I could figure out what he was. Most of my friends had no idea what their fathers were doing. They'd walk out the door, disappear. We'd do class trips to city council. People could watch my dad. Now, they would say to me all the time, my father would never vote for your father. (laughs) One one of the differences, though, is that uh, but for those two years in Congress, your dad's service was largely in Ohio. When I was a child, it was all, yeah. And and that's how I grew up. in Cincinnati. Yeah. And it was very tangible. I mean, I knew exactly what he did. We were taught about it in school. We could follow it in the newspaper. So, and but camp- Gary's dad was in Washington. Did they well, stay in Washington or did no, they? No. Gary's dad, so Gary grew up in the very northwest corner of the state. His dad was in the state senate for 12 years, which meant he left on a Sunday night and he would come back on a Friday night and then go to town hall meetings. So he was gone during the week when Gary was um, uh, in grade school and high school. And then he went to Washington. Yeah. And, and they moved to Washington. But his mom basically kept a home front in Kansas. And That's tough. tough it, was, it was very tough. But so we had very different approaches. And Gary was really not very enthusiastic when I finally said maybe I should run for a state legislative seat. He was terrified that I would leave. And I would be gone. And we really had to walk through that I was not his father. I was more my father. I was really not doing this to leave the family. It was to really become connected. And in Kansas, the legislature was a part-time job. And I could actually be home. My kids were two and five. I lived in the capital city. It was actually a much more family-friendly job than what I had been doing. So I kind of ran for the legislature to stay home. You know, it's interesting you say that. When Barack Obama was thinking about running for president, one of the appeals of it was that he could actually live full-time with his family because he had been a legislator. uh, And he'd been a distant legislator. His family lived in Chicago. He had to go to Springfield. Springfield. And then when he was in the Senate, they stayed in Chicago. And he missed them. And that was was the life Gary had, which was very different than what I had done. Um, because my dad didn't, I mean, he was only in Congress, as you say, briefly, but also I was in college, and so were my brothers by the right. time he went to college. So it, it wasn't like we had an absent dad. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had a stint, you, you spent time as a as a lobbyist before you ran for public I office. I did. And what, what, tell me about that. You know, that has a very negative connotation these days. Um you- well, actually, I learned a lot. I, I ran the Trial Lawyers Association, and I, in that um, capacity, testified in the legislature and, and um, organized their legislative activity. But I also, uh, you know, there's a lot um, of similarities between trial lawyers and politicians, I think, where you make the best case you can, you put your evidence forward, you win or lose, and you you move on. There's a, a certainty to the argument. There's a social justice mission. The trial lawyers that I knew were representing people who um, were suing big corporations and banks, uh, often consumers who had been harmed, and they were bringing a case where if they lost, they didn't get paid. If they won, they took a portion of the settlement. But um, this is a, a group of lawyers who say, you know, we're in this 
um, with you because if if you lose the case, we we lose also. We're not going to charge you by the hour. We're not going to bill you if we don't. Yeah, I mean prevail. we can. I, that's a. But it was we've a heard good these, lesson. This, we've heard these. But it was I mean, a you know, good lesson for me. There are all kinds of me. debates that trial lawyers can be a great progressive force. Yeah, they, they're not. Yeah. Charity cases. They're not charity cases, but for me, it was a also a, a risk-taking yeah. um, association that I I felt I could argue on a lot of time for the good guys, and it also taught me a lot about the legislative process. And I knew I liked it, and I knew I could do it. But I was working sixty hours a week and traveling all over the country. My kids were little, and my husband was a trial lawyer, so the wheels were coming off the wagon and running for the legislature in a seat that was 10 minutes from the Capitol was really a, a great part-time job. You, when you went to the legislature, how many women were there? This was in the mid-90s. It was in the mid-90s. Well, it was in the no, 80s. No, it was 80s. To, it, the mid-80s to the mid-90s. 86. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there were about 20 women um, total in the House and the Senate out of 165. Mm-hmm. Um, when I lobbied, I was the third woman paid to be a lobbyist. There were the League of Women Voters, a woman who was about 155 years old who represented <laughs> the Truckers Association, and me. Um, so it was a very male-dominated place. There had been a few more uh, people by the time I got elected to office. I'm intrigued that the 155-year-old woman was representing the truckers. She was. That, 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 mother trucker is what she was known the, as. She was oh, the no. league person. No, 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 no. She was mother trucker. She was paid. Uh, I should ask you about the issue du jour uh, because, hmm. uh, you know, we now – you turn on the news and it's basically uh, an episode of men behaving badly. Uh, what was – uh, what was your experience like as a as a young female legislator, and as a lobbyist for that matter? Well, as a lobbyist, as a legislator, as a um, woman before that who worked for the corrections department and was the first woman in the central office, I would say that the um, the atmosphere. What breaks my heart is to know that here we are 40 years later and very much the same atmosphere prevails. And it's about power. It's never been about sex. It's all about power. And men who have power over women use that power in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I had um, certainly my share of um, a variety of horrific situations, uh, bosses, people... I was, though, um, protected in that I didn't ever desperately need this job. I could walk out at any minute. I could walk away at any minute. There are so many women who can't do that, who need to feed their families, who need to be quiet because they they are desperate for the work that they have. And that that needs to be blown up. And, and I guess the only thing that gives me some comfort in, in hearing the, the stories come forward is maybe, maybe now this atmosphere can finally change and some light can be shown on what has been miserable behavior by a small cadre of men. But unfortunately, they're men who achieve powerful positions and they can take advantage of a lot of people. And we should point out, men, uh, this is not a partisan... Correct. This is not a par- partisan defect. Not this at is, all. Uh, we, we've seen uh, bad behavior on both parts. I find myself kind of questioning uh, whether uh, I was as uh, assiduous about calling out that behavior. Well, and- I think part of it, I mean, that's a, that's a really good call. We need some men also, I think, to absolutely stand up to their friends and I mean it's the same thing as having racial slurs joked about in a locker room it's the same thing as you know people need to be called out and said that's not acceptable we're right. not going to do that anymore it's over you know i was arguing with a friend who said how can you how can people have voted for donald trump after that access hollywood tape and i had to be honest and i said look i voted for bill clinton twice and i I think he was a, a really fine president, a brilliant guy, uh, committed public servant. Uh, but I, I knew, I mean, everyone in politics knew 
about his behavior, and and we look the other way. And I think there's a lot of soul-searching to be done. You bet. And that shouldn't happen ever again. Um, Not only did people look the other way, but they went after the women who came forward and accused him. Um, And and so it doubled down on um, not only bad behavior, but abusive behavior, and then... Uh, people attack the victims, and you can watch that same pattern repeat. and And it it needs to end. It needs to be over. Let Let me ask you a delicate question: Is that was that fair criticism of Hillary that she participated in that effort? Absolutely, I think it's it's very fair. Um, and I, it, you know, the same criticism would be made today. Now, was impeachment the right vehicle? Right. It's a different to go, question. It, it, but but I it does think, come up today. Like, how do you? Right. Now we see how, the Al Franken situation. Yeah. Um, and you know, all of it is bad. Um, the question is: Is all of it equal? Well, and I think um, I mean. Franken has done something different than um, some of the other males involved. He, first of all, admitted behavior and apologized, but immediately asked for an ethics investigation on himself. Um, And I think that uh, we'll see. I mean, the Ethics Committee, frankly, has not had a great record. They have settled a lot of cases behind closed doors. So. But I don't think, I think you can do that anymore. I don't think you can do that, and I think that Franken is likely to do some real soul-searching in the meantime. But he he stepped forward immediately and did it. Most of the others who have been accused have, have followed a very different path, and it's a path that looks a lot more like what Bill Clinton did. Let me ask you, uh, returning to your career, you ran for insurance commissioner in Kansas, a <laughs> statewide uh, a job that was generally held by— it Not generally. Of, it had never been held by a Democrat in the history of the state. But also by people who were sort of in that insurance yes. commission office and so on. Uh, and you were a not only a Democrat, but a politician running for that office. What made you decide to run for that office? It actually was um, uh, probably the craziest race I've ever done in my life. Um <laughs> Because uh, not only had the office never been held by a Democrat, but nobody knew what was in, what went on in the office. I mean, I literally had no idea uh, because I'd never <laughs> known anybody who worked in the office. Or, so you said, I have no idea what, what's going on in that office, so I'm going to run and find out? Correct. Um, um, <laughs> it, something like that. So the Clinton um, administration had failed to pass comprehensive health reform. I was a legislator. I was on the health committee. I worked on health issues. I really thought something in the insurance commissioner's office has to have something to do with health. You know, people have health insurance, right? It has to have a connection. And, um, I also felt there was a possibility you could make a real consumer case. What I knew about the office is that the incumbent who I was going to run against and all of his predecessors took all of their campaign cash from the companies they regulated. And I thought there's something here that people need to know about. It was legal in Kansas. There was no law Mm -hmm. against it. I tried as a legislator to pass a law to say you shouldn't be allowed to do that, but decided um, that there might be a consumer. So, uh, the third thing that made a difference was that the incumbent had a couple of scandals, as did his predecessor, and there was like an opening. So I thought if we could raise some money, we could teach people what the office, using my father's old lessons, if people understood what the office could be. I could describe it anywhere I wanted because I figured if I didn't know what the hell it did, nobody <laughs> knew what the hell it did. But, you know, to describe it as a, it should be a consumer office, not a company office. I should work for you, not for them. It makes um, eminent sense I'm, to and people. it actually worked. Um, the, How much did you win that race by? Oh, boy. Um I think I won it by like 52, 53% mm-hmm. um, against uh, an incumbent in a year. 1994 was a bad, yeah, bad year Democratic for Democrats. Yeah, bad Democratic year. We lost the governor's office. We lost the two sitting Democratic congressmen we had. We lost about 15 seats in the legislature. And I was walking around saying, woohoo, I won. This is <laughs> no, that's, an, that's an amazing feat, actually. And one of the things, I, the thing I think that you're most uh, remembered for 
in that office is they set they approve rates. Correct. Uh, and uh, and they approve um, uh, acquisitions of insurance. And you stepped in to pre- uh, prevent uh, Anthem from buying Blue uh, Kansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. That's right. And we- and and tell me about that. Why'd you do that? Well, the Kansas Blue Cross Blue Shield company had a majority of the marketplace. Most Kansans got their insurance through Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And actually, it was always known as a well-run company. It had great relationships in the state. At that point, the company, the acquiring company wasn't called Anthem. It was WellPoint. And um, they have since renamed themselves as Anthem. And they were acquiring Blue Cross plans across the country. Kansas would have been their ninth state. But in most other instances, the Blue Cross plans were going bankrupt. And Anthem WellPoint came in and kind of rescued them and was seen as a rescuer. Our company was solvent and doing very well. And I had this very instinctive reaction that this would not be good. It would... um, sever the relationships that were pretty personal. The board all were Kansans, and the providers knew the relationship, and that we'd suddenly become part of this national conglomerate that wouldn't be good. But the company made, I think, a fundamental mistake, which is that they argued that Kansas Blue Cross coming into this big family would have economies of scale, would be able to lower administrative costs and deliver better services, and it would be happy days for everybody. Uh, The reason they made a fundamental mistake is the math didn't work. The administrative overhead of the big conglomerate company was running at about 10%. Kansas Blue Cross was running at about 5% overhead. And you couldn't make that argument that somehow we would be financially better. And they promised their shareholders that they'd make a lot of money on the deal. So ultimately, the shareholders approved it. The company board of directors approved it. I was the last step in the process and supposed to just check the box and say everything's fine. And And you didn't check the box. I blocked it and then was sued by... Uh, well point, and uh, we prevailed and the state in the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court uh, and that and that sort of propelled you into the governor's race. It did. I, uh, I turned in around. And what what happened nationally is um, the next seven Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, which were looked at for acquisition, blocked blocked the takeover and stayed state-based plans, which I think was also good for those states. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Kathleen Sebelius. So you ran for governor in 2002, and you you won a substantial victory. I did. And with that came the uh, right to or the uh, opportunity to deal with an intractably resistant Republican legislature, it was. Do you uh, ever? Did you? Do you ever tell Barack Obama? You know, I feel your pain here. <laughs> well, the difference between state legislatures and Congress is that states operate with a different set of rules. You have to pass a budget. There is no deficit spending. The legislature ends at a specific date, begins at a specific date, and you actually have to get something done. So at the end of the day, um, even if you're working with a majority from the other party, um, there often is some kind of pathway to, to move forward. And I I was really shocked when I got to the national scene to realize that for most members of Congress, if they never did anything, that was fine. Mm -hmm. They really didn't care. Not having a budget, no big deal. Not having any legislation passed, fine. That that attitude is impossible at the state level. I think uh, that was also for Obama a kind of a revelation when he got to the Senate because he had been in the legislature and been able to work these bipartisan 
uh, deals to pass major pieces of legislation, and, and it was much harder. Yeah, it may not be exactly what you want, but you definitely can move the ball down the road. I inherited a school finance challenge that had been floating around Kansas for nine years, and actually the litigants had, had let it lay dormant during the Republican governor's tenure because they figured that with a Republican governor who wasn't eager to put a lot more money in schools and with the Republican legislature – bringing it back to a court decision wouldn't help. But um, we we dealt with that. And, you know, in the a year and a half of lots of struggles and back and forth through the court, we, we had a major new school finance plan um, that was passed that equalized funding throughout Kansas and made a huge step forward. The other uh, thing that uh, the other issue that was a persistent issue in your governorship was abortion. And uh, you vetoed a series of uh, fairly strict anti-abortion laws. You were uh, told by your bishop in uh, in Kansas, your the uh, down there, uh, not to take commun- communion. That's right. And uh, and how painful was that experience? Well, it. I mean, the whole thing is still. Um, uh, a bit baffling to me, having been raised um, and educated in Catholic schools uh, during my entire educational process. Uh, I am a, I'm a, I'm a cultural Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic, um, and I have lived my life as a Catholic. I believe in the church teachings. I have baptized my children. We are married in the church. We, um, what I don't believe in, and I think John Kennedy said it best when he spoke to the Baptist ministers, is that I would impose my religious views on a whole um, group of constituents who don't share those religious views. I believe there is a separation between church and state, that you know, church doctrine should be taught in the churches, not in the polls and in the... Um, so we had this intrinsic tension. Um, and I think the Catholic Church is somewhat split on this about whether or not a Catholic who is elected to office has a duty to impose that religious teaching, which somewhat sounds like Sharia law, on those who don't believe it, or do you actually, you know, operate as a um, a church member yourself, and then uh, look at the laws of the land. Why is Kansas sort of a fulcrum of this debate? I mean, uh, Dr. George Tiller, who was well, a that's who why. Was an ally uh, of yours, uh, but also ran a, a a women's health clinic where abortions were performed, was 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 murdered. He was, and we had what was the so-called um, operation of Mercy Summer, where a number of the most um, vocal right-to-life groups came and spent the entire summer in Wichita protesting Dr. Tiller, but also rallying people around this cause. Um, And I, uh, you know, I tried to follow the recommendations of, of doctors, in large part, who felt that the safety and health of women was paramount, and some of the standards being proposed, some of the operations A lot of being, debate about uh, late-term abortion. But there were very few of those, and they were for health reasons. And um, I just, uh, I mean, I feel very strongly that, again, it's become um, a debate that has less to do with health and welfare of children and families and much more to do about you know, a political wedge issue. And again, making it very difficult, mostly for poor women or women who can't take time off work or women, I mean, women with means will find ways that they can balance their families and plan their own families and take care of health situations and do things. Women without means, if you close a clinic that is near their house or work, if you put a 24-hour waiting period and make them take three days off work, if you require three visits instead of one, none of which have any medical um, 
significance. They all are delay and time and and process. You put that women, woman in a very jeopardized situation, and that's really what a lot of these laws were about, I felt. The interesting thing, David, was while the bishops and some of the priests um, are – very active and vocal in this issue. The nuns are a thousand percent on the other side. And mm. as far as I'm concerned, in the Catholic Church, the nuns do the work. They run <laughs> the hospitals, they teach the schools, they minister to the poor. There are about seven times as many nuns as priests. And anywhere I would go in the state, every time the archbishop would sort of call me out out loud, I would get 15 calls from nuns around the state of Kansas saying, you hang in there, girl, you're doing just the right thing. Do not bat an eye. We pay no attention to him. Neither should you. Um, they were pretty ferocious. I, I, I would, uh, I have to ask you about your tenure as uh, HHS secretary under President Obama, and particularly where we are today on the Affordable Care Act. You were there during that fight. Uh, you were, uh, uh, responsible for uh, executing uh, and administering the uh, the Affordable Care Act, what ha- what has been accomplished, and and where are we today? Well, I think that um, as significant as um, my father's brief tenure in Congress was when Medicare and Medicaid were passed in 1965, and he sat on the um, drafting committees and helped to put those laws into effect. Uh, The passage of the Affordable Care Act is another huge chapter in this path toward universal health coverage, which I think um, is more torturous in America than any country on earth, but we made another giant step. Uh, I think the conversation in some ways has changed forever. And uh, the notion that people actually in 2017 are talking about things like it is unacceptable for insurance companies to ever lock somebody out of a policy because of a pre-existing health condition, that was not part of anybody's conversation in 2008. It wasn't a fact known by most people or cared about. I think that there is much more support throughout the country, Republicans and Democrats, red states and blue states, that health care really is a right and everyone should have access to it. They may have different feelings about how to get there, but those fundamental building blocks are part of the legacy that I don't think will ever go away. Um, so the that is in the that is the sort of twenty thousand foot uh, correct, and and we know twenty million or more twenty million, have, and we have the lowest uninsured rate we've ever had in the country. That said, um, a lot of those people are in Medicaid, and a lot of the discussion has been about these healthcare exchanges and premiums going up uh, in in some states. Uh, you know, in seemingly usurious ways. and Well, the uh, irony is Democrats have now become um, Republicans in some of this debate um, in that what really works in the insurance market is competition. I believe in markets and markets need competition. That used to be the Republican mantra. It has become the Democratic mantra. And um, having regulated an insurance market – uh, you can actually regulate a market with competition. You can't, if it's a monopoly market, they can charge whatever they want. So driving companies out, which the Republicans have systematically tried to do and are still doing in this administration, raises rates. It is the surest way to make sure people pay maximum dollars. Um, they are systematically undercutting, again, another fundamental principle of insurance, which is that you need some balance. You need some people who are sick and some people who are healthy, and they need to actually pay in because nobody can choose and pick when they get a bad diagnosis or get hit by a car. They deserve And that's treatment. been one of the challenges because uh, the number of healthy, younger people who have signed up hasn't matched at, uh, at least the hope uh, when uh, this began in 2014. I think that's right. Although every 
economist who I have read and talked to um, about uh, the end of 2016, if you look at that year, felt that rate adjustments were going to be one time, that the markets were actually stabilizing. Finally, companies had a three-year trend rate. They knew who was coming in. They knew what to do to go after people who weren't coming in. And they were really projecting a very optimistic stable before, market before the new administration before the election so tell me what the what the, the president's tra- uh, you know obviously he's on a, a a mission here to repeal the affordable care act correct uh that has failed a couple of times what administratively has has hhs done and has has the white house done uh to uh, to undermine the program well actually um the White House started uh, at inaugural day because open enrollment of 2017 lasted 11 days into the new administration. And step one really was to pull down all the advertising for the end of 2017. And yeah, they, trying to, to let people know that this was available correct, and they should and enroll. that the deadline was coming and they should get and out. And that had an impact. It had um, people feel about a million folks who – would have likely been insured given the trend rates of the previous three years. So the people who are very sick found the program. Correct. They got the, in the those door healthier, early. younger people who are needed weren't reached as readily as they could have been or should have been. Well, not only reached as readily, but they made sure that they didn't know a deadline was coming and that they didn't warn them to, you know, hurry up and sign up. And and young, healthy people really need to be hit by a two-by-four to say, come on, time is there. So that was step one. Step two is that the administration then systematically put out information that I – I would say was just blatantly false about the program using tax dollars and putting videos together. Then they went after the contracts for 2018 enrollment, which we're in right this moment, canceling the advertising that would tell people enrollment was underway, canceling the groups who were hired to help people on the ground actually walk through the process. And, and cutting the enrollment period in half. Cutting it in half. And and then the president, um, you and I both know that the president's voice had a huge impact on signups in previous years when it was Barack Obama. You could actually watch him uh, give a talk, go on Facebook, put an ad in, and watch the enrollment numbers rise with him. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has done everything he could to convince people that the law is gone, and yet, that it's and blown yet, up. And yet in the first few days of the enrollment period uh, this this November, twice as many people signed up as, uh, as a year earlier. And, um, you know, we'll see how that ends up. I mean, the end of an open enrollment is 2015, but it's clear that people still desperately want and need insurance coverage in spite of the fact that the premiums are Wait, up. so the end of the enrollment period is 2015? I'm sorry, December, December 15th. 15th. Yeah. December 15th. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that premiums are up and that has been widely advertised, most people who are in the marketplace have subsidies that also are elastic. So with the rise in premiums, people's subsidies actually cover most of the cost. And in fact, um, it's estimated that about 60% of the people looking for coverage can find an insurance policy, comprehensive insurance, with a $0 premium. And yet they hear... The Correct. president talk about canceling cost uh, cost sharing subsidies, well, and- canceling the subsidies, and telling them that the program is dead. It's gone. It's been blown up. It doesn't work. And I think that does have an impact. A lot of people think the law has been repealed. And what? So where does where do you see this all going? I know that uh, senators Alexander and Murray have a compromise to continue to fund these subsidies, but it's sort of lingering. Here there may be some showdown around the budget uh, in December, but uh, where where in the long run do you see this going? Well, I'm pretty pragmatic about first you have to stop the bleeding, and I think it's very important that the Democrats take one of the chambers in the 2018 election. Uh, it's more likely to be the House, given current polling. Mm-hmm. If if that occurs, at least they can stop 
legislation from being passed to do further damage. It won't, the law will not be repealed. The law will not. Um, but until the end of this current administration, you will still have lots of administrative tools within the Office of Health and Human Services to undermine, undercut, put out bad information. Do you believe it will survive? I think it will if they cannot muster the votes to pass an actual repeal legislation. I think vestiges of this will absolutely survive. And frankly, the target, as far as I'm concerned, which is Paul Ryan has made fairly clear, Speaker Paul Ryan, is not really anything to do with the Affordable Care Act. It is the underlying Medicaid program which now insures about 72 million people, the largest insurance program in the country, the program that supports most of the vulnerable populations in this country. Including in nursing homes. Absolutely. And it's also the largest amount of money from the federal government to the states of any program in existence. You uh, you had an unhappy experience at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act with the rollout of the website, which became a famous kind of disaster. It was. And how, uh, I don't want to go through the the ins and outs of how it happened and contractors and all of that stuff. I just want to know what it was like for you uh, as someone who's been committed on this so long, I mean, for so much of your life, to suddenly be in the crosshairs for having not rolled this out the way it should have been rolled out. Well, it was, I think, probably the most miserable eight weeks of my life. It seemed like eight years. Um, but from the 1st of October until the 1st of December, when we said we will have it fixed, um, was a very, very long, painful process. First of all, I had let down the president, who I you know, gave up my governor's job to come and work with. And I knew For this, this reason, I number mean, you one were motivated by this health care Absolutely, issue. the opportunity to do this. I think uh, there were people desperate for coverage who were frantic that maybe this wouldn't happen. Uh, if you recall, on October 1st, the adversaries felt so strongly that this law should never be allowed to start, that they shut government down. Yes, the government was shut do down remember. for 13 days. Um, kind of lost in the shuffle of the, uh, the tech disaster. And we, I, I think the scariest thing for me is it, it, first of all, was something that I could not personally fix. I can't write code. I could not say to everybody, get out of the way. I can just do this. Mm -hmm. And I had to rely on many of the same people who had told me everything was going to be fine. That was pretty terrifying. Um, luckily, we had a lot of news support come yes. in, but the people who wrote the code had to actually fix the code. That was step one. And secondly, I thought, if we put this date down, which I did when I went to congressional hearings and got my ears boxed on a regular basis, um, and it doesn't work the second time, we're toast. And, and maybe this law will never, I mean, we have to get this running to make sure the law actually fulfills its promise. The only silver lining in some of that was that nobody was going to get benefits until January 1st. So the December date ensured, and it actually did work, mm -hmm. um, that we had a million people by the 1st of January who then had coverage. And it so we weren't actually blocking people from coverage they could have had day one because it wasn't going to go into effect. But it was horrible. And miserable. Before we go, because it's a particular uh, concern of mine, um, you, you are a big champion of mental health parity. Yes, sir. Uh, tell, me, tell me why and what is the state of play on, on that today? Well, I, I first of all have felt for a very long time that um, mental health should be treated like physical health ailments and Is this not something, set aside. Did you have anything in your family? Or? I did. I had some family members who had depression. I've had family members who suffered from alcoholism. I've had situations where um, people needed treatment, and it was always a, a uh, sidebar program. I worked on mental health issues as a legislature. I um, 
you know, this has been, I think, a compelling. My father put together a whole mental health system in the state of Ohio. So as a child, um, I saw the horrors of having hospitals where people were literally yeah. chained and locked. And I mean, and that wasn't terribly long ago. So we've moved some distance. But in the Bush era, the passage of the Paul Wellstone men- mental health parity legislation, bipartisan, mm-hmm. signed by a Republican president, and then the Affordable Care Act, which said an essential health benefit has to be mental health and substance use disorder treatment. Particularly important given the opioid. Well, it's, it's a huge step forward. Mm-hmm. It, it brings things into the mainstream. I, I think what is really um, alarming is, is those two laws are not fully imp- implemented yet. It is not fully integrated. It is the law, but we don't have enough providers. We don't still have full parity, but we were on the pathway there. This administration again, wants to take a huge step back. We have an attorney general who now talks about the opioid crisis and talks about it as a criminal justice issue, not a major health crisis. The president has said it's a major health crisis, uh, but he supports legislation which would take people's coverage away to deal with that health crisis. You have people once again suggesting that we could do carve-out programs and give states a pot of money and they could deal with it as opposed to saying every insurance policy, every program, every operation should cover this treatment. And it's a mental, I mean, it's a chronic issue. And we have a third of our jail beds right now, a third of our prison beds are filled with drug users, Mm -hmm. not sellers, not people who have committed drug users. And that is not only incredibly ineffective, it's incredibly expensive and stupid. We in Kansas passed a law that said, if you're a drug user, you go into a program. Your sentence stays behind you. So if you screw up on the program, you can go go in. We had fewer prisoners when I left the governor's office than when I came in. Mm -hmm. We actually shut down a couple of wards in areas because it, it is a chronic health disease, not a criminal issue. Well, I hope that you don't take, I hope that it's not inappropriate for me to say that I'm sure that your dad, who passed away a few years ago, by the way, who also ran for the school board in his late 70s. He did. He left the governor's office, and 25 years later, he ran for the school board. In Cincinnati, which which speaks to to, uh, his uh, commitment. But he must have been terribly proud of the things that you've done. And uh, on behalf of people who uh, need health care and on behalf of people who are struggling with mental health problems, I want to thank you for your service. Thank you so much. And for being at the Institute of Politics. Well, it was great to be here. And um, the one of the joys when I got elected governor was having my father there. And much to his surprise, I wore the dress that had been made for my mother for his inauguration. Uh, and that was a surprise. And it was kind of a wonderful full circle. Kathleen Sebelius, great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 